Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 160 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Monty, she, her pronouns, and I'm a modern classroom mentor and middle school science teacher in Washington, D.C. And today I am joined by a high school special education teacher. Hi, Maddie. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? Doing pretty well. Just, you know, getting ready to wrap up week three of school. So, you know, it's been... Busy time. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I always forget how... Uh, exhausting the first couple weeks of school are and my body is just now adjusting and I've been at work for five weeks so three weeks of school two weeks of PD so just now getting adjusted I feel you (laughs) Um, so tell us more about who you are and how you started your modern classroom journey sure so I'm in my 10th year working as a special education high school teacher in New York City Um, I've bounced around a bit from public to charter to private and back to public schools um, my, I've done some co-teaching, some self-contained, some pullouts. My current um, position is working in the Horizon program, which um, it serves autistic students in an eight-to-one-to-one setting. So eight students, one teacher, and at least one para. Um, and so during the 2021 to 2022 school year, during the pandemic, but like when we had returned to in-person learning, I was feeling really frustrated trying to meet everybody's needs, um, which, you know, was always really hard as a special education teacher. That's always our job. But during the pandemic, it became even harder because their students and teachers were absent so often, either because they were sick or their family members were sick or they had been exposed. And so I was finding it really difficult to appropriately differentiate for students and make sure that they got what they needed, but also gave them enough grace and, you know, during difficult times in their lives. And um, also they get a lot of related services. So they're always getting pulled out for speech, for OT, for counseling, all these really important things. Um, But that made it really hard to like hold down the fort in class. And then one of my administrators shared an article about the Modern Classrooms Project um, and I was really intrigued about the possibilities that it might be able to open up for me, um, specifically the self-pacing and the sort of the differentiation with the must do, should do and aspire to do um, options that kind of allow students to choose their own adventure at different points in the year, depending on, you know, whatever else is going on in their lives, um, really felt like it was like opening up a new world because now um, it meant that my students, if they were home because they were exposed to COVID, but they weren't actually feeling sick, then they could access the materials online and they could continue to work at their own pace. And it also meant that if students were going through a hardship, they could choose to just do the must-do assignments, do the bare minimum for now. And then when they were in a better place, they could push themselves to do more. And so now I'm, I continue to use it now and it's still really serving those functions really well. Yeah, I think we got a huge influx of people during COVID because I think we were all in very similar places. I actually started Modern Classroom like the year before COVID. Um, and, 
you know, so I, I'm always just very fascinated with people's journey into like the modern classroom realm because it, it is just so vastly different, especially now in 2023. Um, so this month um, we're talking about SEL, which for those that don't don't know, it stands for social emotional wellness. Um, so, Maddie, just curious, what is, you know, SEL and why is it crucial in today's educational landscape? Cool. So social emotional learning, the way I would define it is that it's talking about explicit teaching and practicing of social skills and emotional intelligence. So, you know, I think a lot about how adults live and how students live and how as adults, we all know that we don't perform our best work when we're feeling overwhelmed or we're having mental health crisis or we feel like our needs aren't being um, addressed or that we're not being listened to. We know that we have to take breaks. We know that we have to advocate for ourselves. We know that we have to practice yoga, go for walks, go whatever it is that calms us down. And we know that sometimes we have to have difficult conversations about people that we're in relationships with. Um, And all of that is true for kids as well. But sometimes that has gotten overlooked um, in kids' school experiences. But kids experience all those emotions as well. And they have less experience than we do. So they don't always like have those skills intuitively. They get stressed, they go through breakups, they have traumatic experiences, they have chronic illness, they have mental illness, so many things going on in their lives. And so to me, SEL is making space in the education system to like spend time on teaching kids how to cope and how to communicate their needs um, so that they're able to prioritize their social emotional needs, which is, you know, a prerequisite to academic performance. Um, So is SEL something that you've studied or is it something that you just stumbled across, like you saw the need for it? And so you took it, you know, took the time to learn the things that were necessary to help, you know, students feel, you know, more acclimated um, in your class. That's a good question. Um, so I think that because I'm a special education teacher, um, and I've worked with a lot of students who get, who have been like classified as emotionally disturbed, it kind of came up a lot in my early years, like when I was in grad school and like learning about supporting students, not necessarily like in a formal way, but just like that always would come up and then like doing IEP meetings and, you know, it, you kind of learn as you go, um, but also I have, I have worked at schools where they'll have an SEL um, professional development series. They'll have the guidance counselor talk to teachers about SEL, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I do think that like a lot of this has to do with what teachers ch- choose to seek out. Um, it's so- sometimes some schools are prioritizing it and others aren't. Um So it's really about like what the teachers decide to spend their professional development and like further learning on. And so for those that might not really know much about SEL, what are some ways in which uh, like low stake ways that teachers can, you know, integrate, you know, SEL into their classrooms as well as, you know, ways that you have used it in your modern classroom? Yeah, totally. So I think, um, it, it can look as big and as small as it needs to in, in a sense. So, um, for example, I start my class every day with a check-in where I ask students to go around the circle and share how they're feeling. For What works for my population is I have, like, a color wheel, red to green, and with, you know, like, orange and yellow in the middle, and ask them to say what color they're feeling and why. And what that does is it communicates to students that I care about them as humans and before I care about them as 
um, students. And it also lets me know, you know, like who's having a hard morning or who's feeling really great and lets me know like, okay, who can I push and who should I like give some grace to and who, when should I, you know, send a text to the guidance counselor? Um, So it's those little things. I also ask them to set intentions for their day. So I think a lot of times uh, students are going through the motions of school because they have to. Um, It's not a choice to be there, but asking them to set a goal at the beginning of the day, whether it's an academic goal or like uh, a behavior goal, it kind of gives them some agency around what they're going to be working on. Um, And then throughout the day, I'll ask them like, hey, are you meeting your intention? Why or why not? Like, if you're not meeting your intention, like, what can I do to help you redirect yourself? Um, Similarly, at the end of the day, I do, I have students do shout outs and I have them share their, uh, the best part of their day and the worst part of their, their day. That gives me really important information. Sometimes it's about, you know, my class and that's important feedback for me to get. And sometimes it's just about like, okay, like, who do I need to follow up with um, about something? And sometimes that's when like you find out, oh, this incident happened during the day that maybe explains the student's behavior. Um, so those are some like really small ways that teachers can um, open and close their days with some SEL. Um, so how does you know SEL benefit students academically and emotionally? And can you provide any research or real world examples that you have for listeners? Yeah, totally. Um, So I want to tell a story about a student that I had in my class last year. He transferred into my school in the middle of the year. Um, He was coming from a setting that wasn't working for him and being moved into a smaller setting to address his needs. Um, He was he's a really smart kid. He's a really good reader, um, knows a ton of historical facts. He would tell you that he's terrible at math, but he's actually quite, quite strong when given the supports he needs. But um, he really wasn't turning in work. And we were trying to figure out, like, why this kid was, you know, missing so much, um, so much work when he was so smart and so capable. And it became clear from talking to his family that he had been kind of shuffled along throughout his education because he had, you know, um, very high intelligence, uh, you know, whatever that means people could recognize that he was capable, um, but he wasn't really actually developing student skills or communication skills. And so he was really lacking in those areas. And so I decided to hold a circle um, with him and a couple of the students in the class that he was friends with. And um, one, you know, one of, one of his therapists at the school and a para And I started by asking everybody to go around the circle and say one thing that they really liked about this kid. Um, And and so everyone went around and said something they had noticed about him that they really liked. And that kind of, you know, set the tone to show him that we care about him. Um, And so then after we got him feeling, you know, feeling like he had value and that we cared about him, he started to open up about how he was really struggling with executive functioning and he didn't know why he had so much trouble remembering what work he needed to do or why he had so much trouble developing the motivation um, to get the work done. And it really, it really revealed a lot. Like people before that were saying, Oh, he's lazy or he's stubborn or whatever. And there was actually just like a lot that he didn't understand about himself and giving him, like putting him in the position of hearing how much everyone really cared about him and wanted him to do well, allowed him to open up about that. And after that, we, you know, it it wasn't, it wasn't like suddenly he was the perfect student, but 
that was really the starting point that enabled us to like have conversations with him about what he needed to do differently and what we needed to do differently to create a space that was going to work for him. Um, and he ended up finishing off the year strong and he, you know, voiced that that circle really made him realize that people care about him. And so I think about him when I think about like how we see uh, concrete um, benefits to SEL. And so what role do you think the adults in the building play? And are those roles, I like, are those things different based on the role that the adult has? Or do we all have the same expectations when it comes to SEL and making sure that, you know, kids' emotional health is, you know, put first? Yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, and I think it varies a lot from school to school, like what kinds of systems are and are not set up. Um, I think that like SEL is becoming more of a thing that's being talked about in education. So there's like more funding going into SEL in different pockets and different, like in some districts, in some schools, um, some schools are electing to have their teachers trained in SEL. Some are having their counselors do more training. Um, but it's, it's often sprinkled in, in these like kind of like isolated areas, like maybe in advisory or when there's an incident, then like the cultural, the culture team will have a, a circle about it or whatever. Um, but when it comes to teaching, I think it's really up to individual classroom teachers to choose whether or not they're going to center SEL classroom instruction. So like teachers can decide they're going to spend time checking in with students, having them do reflections, having them do community building circles and harm and healing circles. And for some educators that can feel like they're really sacrificing important content time. Um, and, you know, that's really hard because there are really, you know, there's such demand on teachers to get results, um, especially at the high school level, especially in places where there is um, high stakes testing. And so um, it can be hard to let go of those things. And I think that school leaders can really um, sort of like encourage teachers to prioritize SEL by deprioritizing things like test scores and also like giving positive attention and ratings to teachers who choose to center SEL. So I think that um, school leaders and districts can like their role is to make it make it feel possible for teachers to center those things. Um, so I'm curious to know what resources or trainings that you know of that are available for teachers who would like to enhance their SEO practices. Yeah, sure. So I think um, depending on where listeners are tuning in from, um, you know, it's worth like following up with their district or their school leader about what is available to them, especially like what's available for free. Um, but for me, I learned a lot from actually restorative justice trainings, which I think is like really um, like intertwined with social emotional learning is like how we think about, um, you know, justice in our classrooms. And so I got some training by Brotherhood Sister Soul in New York. And um, I also used to work at a school that brought in Ramapo, which is an organization that trains teachers in restorative justice. Um, and so I, yeah, I would encourage teachers um, to to look into restorative justice trainings as a way to kind of like dig deeper into SEL and like how it can support them in their, you know, classroom management and so on. What pillars of restorative justice helped you most? Like what about restorative justice allowed you to, you know, learn more about SEL? Oh, that's a good question. 
I think, um, you know, what I what I've learned from restorative justice is that in order for in order to do restorative justice when something goes wrong with a kid, whether it's an incident between two students or just a, an individual kid who is struggling and not um, doing well in school, you have to have built a really solid foundation. And that's what they call tier one of restorative justice is community building. Um, and so like, for example, one way that I do that in my class is that um, at the beginning of the year, I ask every student to bring in one object from home that is special to them and represents them in some way. And they tell us about it and then they keep it on a shelf in my classroom the whole year. And that's a way that we show that everybody's identity has a place in our classroom, in our space. Um, and it invites kids to bring in those parts of themselves when they come to school. So activities like that, that really build community, make it possible so that when there is harm, um, there is something to be restored, right? So if, um, you know, if a student says something hurtful to another student, then we need to be able to restore that community that we already built. Um, and if that foundation isn't there, then a restorative justice conversation isn't going to be so fruitful. Um, similarly, if we want kids to care about how they're doing academically, and if we want them to believe in their, themselves and their own abilities, they need to feel like they have a community in the classroom that cares about how they do. Yeah, I, I work in a school that also kind of practices this model. And I think one of the most important things that that comes out of this is the whole repairing harm. I think, you know, as kids sometimes, and even as adults, you know, we have explosive reactions to things. And sure. I think there is so much power in teaching kids like that it's okay to admit that like you were wrong and saying sorry. Like, and even as an adult, I feel like one of the most powerful tools that I use in my classroom is like my ability to be able to tell a kid that I'm sorry when like I've said a thing or I've done a thing that, you know, probably broke the trust or like broke, you know, some sort of protocol. And, and so that's one of my favorite things, like when it comes to SEL, like really teaching kids, like we as adults are also doing this work of like learning how to manage, you know, stress and things like that. Um, so I love that you brought up the restorative justice piece because it just really made me think of that. Um, and it wouldn't have even been a connection that I made. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. The apology piece I think is so huge. Um, you know, I've, th some kids have never heard a teacher apologize before. So like when you do that, it's a big deal that really shows that like you're a human and it also makes it okay for them to apologize when they mess up. So I a hundred percent agree. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the kid is also way more willing to have a conversation with you about like a thing that happened. You know, if a kid like I I had two kids that I really struggled with last year and we did have like explosive moments in class and I said I was sorry. And then by me saying sorry, they all of a sudden was like, well, I'm sorry, too. And I was like, oh, this is great. And like, let's actually talk Aww. about now, like why we were both upset. And, you know, I think sometimes kids also forget that we as teachers are human. And so they say and do things. And I think it's also, that's like also an important thing. Like, yes, apologize as the adult, but also get the kid to understand too. Like, well, why did I respond this way? Um, and I think that all kind of goes into SEL and just getting kids to like take more ownership of, or like think through sometimes the things that we say and do. Because, um, you know, we're impulsive, especially at the middle school level, what I teach, they're very impulsive. So, oh yeah, um, totally. But, the, you know, but they're fine. So, <laughs> um. <laughs> So how can parents and caregivers support SEL at home and what benefits, you know, can they expect to see in their children if they invest the time to learn more about this? 
Yeah. So, you know, I always um, have some, a little bit of like pause with this type of question. Cause I'm actually, I'm not a parent myself. So I think, you know, like as hard as it can be with teaching at school, like I don't go home at the end of the day and like have to continue having being on all the time, the way parents and caregivers do. So it's like much, I think it's much harder for parents to always a hundred percent of the time, um, you know, like, like make the space that a, a kid needs for their entire social emotional um, selves. But I think that also that offer, offers more opportunities, like we were saying earlier, for having conversations about like why conflicts happen. Um, and so I think, I think I, you know, would encourage parents to, you know, like have give kids mindfulness techniques. If I see something that's working for a particular student at school, I might suggest it using it at home as well. Um, you know, doing their best to make space for kids' feelings and trying to uncover root causes of a kid's behavior. So, you know, I think this comes up with special education a lot where it's like, you know, sometimes there's a parent who's like really, really sick of telling their kid to do their homework and they're, you know, frustrated and like maybe maybe there's something underlying going on that hasn't been recognized yet. Like maybe there's a disability, um, maybe a particular type of, you know, adjustment would make that kid more willing to do the homework, right? Um, and so like really looking to uncover those root causes, I think is the best thing. Um, and then I also just think like what whatever we want as adults for ourselves, like doing our best whenever, whenever is appropriate to extend that same grace to kids. So like, just like sometimes, you know, like we are running late to a meeting, like the kid is two minutes late once, like to, to school or to class or whatever, like it's not the end of the world. It's actually quite normal. Right. Um, and just like thinking about like, okay, how would this come up in the adult world? And like, how would I want to be treated if that happened? I think, um, it's, it's the way to go. Yeah, I agree um, with everything that you said. I think, you know, we also sometimes forget that children are people and they're, you know, they have feelings. Sometimes they have big feelings. And I think when I get really frustrated with a kid, I think about how I respond when I'm frustrated and I don't always respond the way that I'm supposed to. And that always makes me way more empathetic towards a kid who is just expressing frustration. Now, if I was perfect and I did things perfectly all the time, then like I could be annoyed with the child. But I'm like, if I am not always doing these things, how can we expect a kid to always do those things? And I think that's just like an important thing. Like someone said that to me once, like, well, are you perfect? Do you do these things right all the time? And I was like, I actually don't. And they were like, well, how can you be mad at someone for not meeting this expectation when you don't have this expectation for yourself. And it was like a very woke moment for me. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, it's so real. I mean, it's like, when do adults ever have to sit at a desk all day under really bright fluorescent lights and not talk to the people around them? It's just like, it's not an expectation that we have of adults. So we shouldn't have it for kids either. Exactly. I get annoyed when they tell me in faculty meetings that I can't have my technology, but I make kids close their computers every time they walk in my class. I'm like, you're not allowed to have your computer, you know? And yeah, it's very, you know, and obviously I can make the decision to close the computer and be like fine about it, but I am annoyed every time I'm like, I know how to multitask. And you know, kids say this to me all the time. I can multitask. And I'm like, no, you need to listen to what I'm saying. And so I, I think that's just super important for us to keep in the back of my mind. It's like, in our minds, like they're still learning. They're like sponges. And if we don't have the expectation for ourselves, 
we shouldn't necessarily always have it for kids. Not that we shouldn't expect things of them, but you know, it's just a great place to start. Yeah. So what do you hope to see in the future? What goals do you have when it comes to this SEL, you know, thing being merged in schools? Um, yeah, so I think it has a lot to do with what we were saying um, about treating kids as human beings. I, I think I want to see the education world recognize that kids are humans who have bodies, who have physical needs and have a full spectrum of emotions. So, you know, sometimes they have a headache and they have their head down and, um, you know, I want to see the school react to that in ways other than like punitively or assuming that the kid is lazy, right? Um, I want to see students, you know, kind of be given both respect and responsibility Um, because ultimately like that's what adolescents want, right? Like they want to be treated more like adults um, as they're developing. And so they want to be given responsibility and also um, with that, you know, comes the expectations and also, you know, the understanding that we give to each other as adults. Um, and as far as like my goals, um, since I teach ninth grade, that's a big transition year for students. Like the, the main thing that I always hope to accomplish is that by the end of the student's ninth grade year, that they understand themselves and what they need in order to feel safe and be able to succeed and that they know how to ask for those things. Um, So that's where, you know, the self-advocacy comes in and knowing how to ask for what they need appropriately and professionally um, so that they can get what they want while also like respecting others. And I feel like if they can do that, then they're set up for the rest of their high school and like what, whatever academic challenges come their way, as long as they can understand for themselves what they need and how to ask for it, then they'll be able to handle whatever's coming. And so Maddie, you've said a lot of really great things and I'm sure listeners are going to, you know, want to follow up. And if you're open to it, we always ask at the end, how can listeners connect with you? Should they have more questions or ideas, or they just want to say thanks for, you know, you hopping on this episode and sharing their expertise? Totally. Um, I think I shared my Instagram handle, so people are welcome to reach out to me. Um, I can also provide my email address if that's uh, good. I'm happy to hear from educators always. Um, So we'll make sure that Maddie's Instagram is in the show notes for this episode. So if you're interested in hearing more or, you know, wanting to chat with Maddie, um, you can find her on Instagram. Um, Maddie, thank you so much for, you know, meeting with me on a Thursday after a very Mm -hmm. long week. Um, And we're just always super grateful for people who hop on here and share their experiences and expertise with the community. Listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org forward slash 160. We'll have this episode's recap and transcript uploaded to the Modern Classrooms blog on Friday. So be sure sure to check those out or check back in the show notes for the episode if you like to access those. Also, listeners, please leave a review if this podcast has been helpful in supporting you create a blended self-paced mastery-based learning environment. It does help other folks find it. Thank you all for listening. Have a great rest of your week and we'll be back next Sunday. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org. And you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. 
You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj. That's P R O J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Thank you.